Welcome to the podcast. It's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. This is where you can get answers to your coaching questions. And I'm Coach Jonathan Lee. And here with me is Coach Chad Timmerman. Hello. And back from a brief uh, a brief interlude, our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. And we are going to answer more of your coaching questions today. You can submit them to us by going to trainerroad.com slash podcast or by using the hashtag AskTrainerRoad on Twitter or on Instagram. And you can ask us whatever questions you have that pertain to training, cycling, uh, bike equipment, whatever it may be. Send those questions in and we'll do our best to answer them. You can find this podcast on iTunes or on SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever else you find podcasts. And we're even, we're going to be looking into how to get onto Spotify too, because I just saw that they're now doing podcasts. So hopefully you'll be able to find us on there soon. Uh, you can, uh, and remember any questions that have to do with cycling and we'll answer them. Um, before we get into things, just a quick few updates, uh, for those of you that haven't listened to the previous episode, it was, um, or the previous two episodes, I should say they were on, they were from sea otter from the sea otter classic, that big bike event. And one was with Neil Shirley, where we talked all about how to crush those big epic days on the bike. Um, so he's, he's an ex pro now editor at road bike action, but he destroys like these big grand fondos or sportives, um, and he's known for it. So he gives away some really cool practical advice and tips. And then we talked to Brad Copeland and he's the head mechanic at specialized. And he's the, one of the only mechanics that specialized trusts to touch the top triathlon and mountain bike racers bikes. Um, cause he's so good. So they just trust him to do it. And he handles all that stuff. So he builds them from scratch and he maintains them on race day. Got some really cool info on everything from mountain biking to road to triathlon in that one too. So check those out. And then also we're on Snapchat and if you guys want to see us on there, we'll be answering coaching questions every once in a while. So we'll be picking out quick ones that we can answer and you'll find us on there. So it's just trainer road on Snapchat. You can find us there. So let's kick things off uh, with Perry, first of all. Um, and this one isn't as much a question, but we thought it was pretty cool. So we'll read it off. He says, I wanted to let you know the results I've had with trainer road. I started at five, seven, 173 pounds in January of 2016. And now he's six, five, two, 10. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, I was 153 pounds on race day, May 7th, 2016. That's a, that's a big loss, man. 20 pounds. Huge. Holy yeah. Smokes. Good job. I started with a base from using unstructured virtual training. Uh, I started using trainer road in February. I have completed the build phase, sustained power build that is, and half of the specialty of uh, the specialty plan, which is the rolling road race, high volume plan, um, before his first 75 mile gravel race. So those are our training plans or training plans within our app. If you don't know last year, I was doing a few rides during the week and some of the long, easy rides on the weekends. My time for the 75 mile gravel race was five hours and 11 minutes. And I was 17th place with a 14.5 mile an hour average. This year I finished in a time of 439, so four hours, 39 minutes, and in the top five with a 16.3 mile per hour average. My FTP increased wow. from about, that's huge increase, man. Um, my FTP increased from about 210 to 265. Solid. I did all Good my job. training on trainer road, only did a few short outside rides of two hours or less to check my equipment and test nutritional supplements. I love your podcast. I give you and trainer road five stars. I'll be using trainer road through the rest of the season. Thank you, Perry. Good job, Perry. Sweet. Yeah. Good job, Perry. And I guess that's as, that's as close as we'll get to an advertisement for us, right? <laughs> we don't need to have advertising yeah. partners on here. We'll just, <laughs> we'll promote ourselves every once in a while. Um, so yeah, great job, Perry. Uh, way to stick to your training plan too. That's solid. Uh, the next question is from Insta. Well, it was submitted through Instagram and I hope I'm getting the name right. Masse. I don't know if that's correct. Um, but, uh, you say I've been doing triathlons for six years, but neglected bike training before signing up for trainer road for the last 10 months. I've been following your training plans and I improved my FTP from 2.7 to 3.5 Watts per kilogram. On the other hand, um, uh, when I export my workouts to sport tracks and Strava, I'm disappointed to see my average speed has not increased whatsoever. Yesterday I did a brick workout at a half or at half Ironman intensity and compared it to a similar workout I did right before joining trainer road. It appears my average speed decreased slightly at the same exact heart rate and perceived effort. I know trainer speed is irrelevant, but wouldn't it be reasonable to expect some improvement? I'm on the same setup and my weight hasn't changed. I ride a Le Mans Revolution direct drive trainer, so tire pressure and resistance settings are not a factor. Do you want to take this one, Nate? 
yeah. <clears throat> so one thing, um, so we're assuming right now that you're talking about inside speed on the trainer. Uh, and we can probably answer it both ways. Like if you're, if you're talking about inside, we'll, I'll answer that. And then outside, we'll answer that too. So for inside, if you're, I wouldn't even look at average speed when comparing workouts because it's really going to depend on the type of workout. Um, if you really wanted to compare and use speed on something like the Le Mans Revolution, um, I would look at like a 10-minute interval that you did when you were at 2.7 watts a kilo and then up to 3.5 watts a kilo. And I'm guessing that improvement was due to power increase and not just weight loss. Because if it was just weight loss, um, then your speed really wouldn't change at all. Uh, but in general, so like if I do, um, a whole bunch, if I do a workout later in the season, that's a bunch like 30 seconds on 30 seconds off, it's probably going to have a pretty low average speed compared to a, like a long, um, endurance ride or, uh, you know, something with big, long sweet spot intervals because you're, um, it's been explaining this, right. But if you go really hard on and really hard off, you're not going to have a high average speed. So speed isn't a good way to compare. The best way to do it, if you're concerned about that you're not making improvement, would be to go outside and do like a hill climb on something and repeat it there, and that can be your measurement. If because um, it sounds like you don't have a power meter, but a big if caveat you, there though is that a big caveat there is that the the conditions have to be as yeah have to be as close to similar as they can get for you to really put some trust in that data. Yeah, but even with a two point seven to three point five, uh, mm-hmm. unless it's like just totally a headwind one day and like a mm-hmm. tailwind the next day you're going to have some improvement. You're not going to get the same. It's not gonna be the same. Right. Um, and then on, I, I really don't think I'd be very surprised if outside you're, you're doing the same speeds. Um, if you are, I don't know, Chad, I would say it's, you're probably just not pushing yourself hard enough. Um, but 3.5 Watts a kilo in a triathlon, like I say, four Watts a kilo is pretty much front of the pack 3.5 is getting very close to front of the pack especially if you're a heavier rider on a flat course um like i am at i'm a a heavier bigger guy and at 3.5 watts a kilo on a flat course i can be uh really high up in the the bike split standings on that yeah of course and then aerodynamics factors into it too but uh, Mm -hmm. we we don't know too much about this guy's stature i don't think he mentions anything so mm. he, he has, is this guy who lost a lot of weight? Oh no, different question. Sorry. Yeah. It doesn't say it. Doesn't say it. Yeah. So in this case, to be honest to one thing, uh, I, I always tried to, Masse, I hope that's how you say your name. Um, uh, one thing that, uh, we, that I always try to do is never bring, never use data that I never try to bring in other data points to compare if those data points aren't reliable or aren't a good indicator. And and in this case, power definitely, of course, is the greatest indicator. If you don't have a power meter outside, then like Nate said, try to find a climb in consistent conditions. And with that huge of a jump, which is, geez, I mean, you're looking at close to a 30% jump, right? Uh, That's pretty darn good. So you should see some serious increase there. Um, Let us know if you don't. Um, There should be something... Maybe we can help you find out what's going on there, but you absolutely should. So just don't use average speed for a workout on the trainer. That that won't help <laughs> you at all to track uh, improvements. Indeed. Uh, now some quick questions from Twitter. Ian says, "I'm a new cyclist, but I'm hooked. Is it okay to skip a low volume plan and move to a mid volume base plan?" So he's talking about base training. Is it okay to skip from one to the next? Yeah, Ian, uh, the plans aren't organized in such a manner that you go from low volume and then to mid volume and then to high volume. Rather, you choose a volume plan based on um, time constraints and things like your training history and your uh, responsiveness to training, your recoverability and, and things like that. So it's more a matter of how much training can you handle. And, and by handle, I mean positively respond to. It's not, you know, get through it and then you know just survive it at all costs. It's what actually makes you faster and doesn't break you down. So that might be the low volume, that might be the mid volume. That's like I said, gonna depend on on factors outside of that. So choose a plan based on you know what works for you and how much you can uh, dedicate to training, how much time. Ollie, he says, is there any technical or practical reason why single leg power meters are left only rather than right? Thanks. Uh, do you guys wanna answer this one? Go ahead, ahead Jonathan. Take it? Yeah. Okay. I'll take, um, the, the main reason behind this is because there's not a lot of room between the crank arm, or I should say there's more clearance issues on the crank arm on your drive side, uh, dealing with the drivetrain, And in many cases also, you've got issues with it coming up into the frame there. 
a lot of frames actually are asymmetrical in that sense, um, where they'll, it'll be, have, uh, that chain stay will be coming out right there. So you may have clearance issues there. So that's really the main reason. And also when you think about it from a production standpoint, it's cheaper in many ways for like a company like stages, for example, to make just a crank arm rather than to have to go through and make a full crank set or have anything with a molded spider into that crank arm on the drive side. So uh, it's cheaper, but then the clearance issues I really think are the are the biggest deal. Do you guys have any other insights on that? No, that's nope. awesome. Hey guys, love the show. It's great motivation to listen to. My question relates to alcohol. Yes, it's bad for your performance, but how bad is it? I like to give uh, I like to give my all in training, but I'm not a pro, and I like to socialize too. For sure, a hangover is going to negatively affect the next day's performance, and excess calories can put on the pounds. But is having a few drinks if you have a rest day the next day, for instance, going to result in the performance deficit going forward? Keep up the good work. Chad, you, you want to take this one? <laughs> yeah, so um, this is kind of a, an issue that's near and dear to my heart, trying to balance training with um, uh, indulgence, so to speak. And um, <laughs> I've, I've <laughs> amongst other things. So um, I've done a, a fair amount of research on this over the years, and I, I can't come up with uh, any way to say that alcohol and training mix, they, they simply don't. Um, so, so alcohol, it doesn't digest like food. You know, it basically goes stomach, small intestine, that's about all the farther it makes, and then it's right into your bloodstream. So it, you'll breathe a little bit out, but it's largely up to your liver to process it. And then we'll talk about the liver in just a minute. Few things to, to keep in mind before that is that glucose conversion basically comes to a screeching halt when you introduce alcohol into the system. And that's not a big deal in terms of performance because you're talking about after the fact. So not a big concern there. Certainly don't want it before a workout. On top of that, though, fat metabolism declines a lot and it declines for a relatively long time, too. Um, alcohol is basically a poison. Your body wants to get rid of it. So it metabolically prioritizes it above everything else. On top of that, it's highly caloric. So, you know, carbohydrate is five grams per or, uh, five calories per gram. Fats way up at nine and alcohol sits right in between there at seven. So a lot of caloric content. And, and, and on top of that, it, it creates a, what's called an anti-diuretic response or a Basically, you lose liquids, and with those liquids, you lose vitamins and minerals. And this happens the entire time alcohol is in your system. So then it becomes a question of how quickly do you metabolize um, the alcohol. And for most people, that's about a half ounce an hour, which is you know typical beer, glass of wine, shot of shot of the harder stuff. But some people metabolize more slowly; it can take as long as three hours, which means this is happening the entire three hours. And then all the while, you know, nutrient absorption. So if you happen to eat, that, that, that's impacted too. You're not taking as much from your food as you could take. So there's a recovery element right there. Then there's uh, muscular concerns. Um, it affects sleep patterns. And anything that affects sleep patterns is going to affect things like uh, HDR, you know, human growth hormone release, testosterone levels, et cetera. So, you know, the, I don't need to tell you this is pretty uh, undesirable in terms of training adaptation or, or the benefit you derive from all the hard work you do. And then we're, we're not even talking about excess alcohol consumption. This is moderate alcohol consumption. If you really overdo it, like the, the you know, if you have a few drinks and maybe they lead to a couple more and you have a legitimate hangover, um, adaptation can be impaired for days afterwards, you know, one, two, three days, quite a long time. So the gist of all this is that it slows recovery, both in terms of, you know, the, the injury you inflict on yourself during a workout. And then if you're actually injured, it's about the worst thing you can do for it. But then if, if we step back to Chad, the... Chad, go ahead. what a buzzkill. I, I know. <laughs> believe me. You just ruined a lot of this people's is, weekends. And I, and I hate that this is the truth, but it is. In fact, Dave and I were driving to a race. Our videographer and I were driving to a race last night and it, alcohol got brought up. And, and I told him, I've recently deduced that it is about the single worst thing you can do in terms of training. But there is a silver lining. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. It's, it's fun um, to do. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's, that's part of it. That's but, a silver uh, lining. So if we if we go back to the liver, it's it's basically your liver that has to process process uh, the alcohol or metabolize it. So it really goes comes back to the quantity and, and the alcohol content. You can't just say I had a beer. You know, a difference between a Coors Light and a a, a Bigfoot a Sierra Nevada Bigfoot is quite extreme. Like you know, one to three sort of sort of difference. So um, I, I got two pieces of advice to offer here. First is to drink with food because that, that slows the absorption into your bloodstream, which means it's a less of an impact on your liver and on your recovery. So try to eat something with it and, and what you eat, well, try to be sensible about that. I, and I know that's hard when you're a little bit buzzed. Um, 
and and then the second bit of advice is just limit your intake if at all possible have a drink don't have several or if you have a couple you know eh, just 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 be cognizant of the fact that the more you drink the 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 more ill effects you're going to incur so chad um you know he says he's not a pro i know you're at a high level and you occasionally well, how often do you drink a beer? I, I more than occasionally drink a beer, and that's the problem. And, and, and I see it. It has a direct impact on my training. So when I, I am serious about something that's coming up or I'm serious about weight loss or sleeping better, the one thing I change is my alcohol intake. And a lot of the times I'll abstain completely or I'll have a single beer and I'll do it early in the day, like maybe with lunch. That way it doesn't affect my sleep. Um, weight loss, I can handle it later on with a workout. Um, the impact is, is lessened for sure. Um, but you know, after a race, it's super tempting to have a beer, have two and and I still do it, but I can directly attribute any, any suffering or any decline in my, my performance to pretty much that pretty much the alcohol. It's like part of the culture. A lot of races will have a keg afterwards and they'll, they'll be a beer and guys jokingly say it's recovery beer. Oh, yeah. there's carbs in it, but yeah, and there, really the there are carbohydrates, beers. but there's nothing recovery oriented about alcohol. <laughs> well, and that's just like, you know, and, and on Mount, with mountain biking, trail beers are very much a thing, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And you, you yeah. take them in your bag and, and you right, gotta, right alongside reservoir of water, you've got your bag full of some, some stuff to enjoy with the boys afterward. Right. So, so you got to balance, you know, your, your performance mm-hmm. uh, aspirations with your, you know, in, enjoyment. Yeah. That's the biggest point is. I think if you want to just enjoy it and ride some trails and be mm-hmm. fit and have fun, you don't need to train like Christopher would and restrict yourself all the time. Yeah, exactly. So what what I've done recently is just reduced it to a couple of days a week. I, you know, I have like a weekday where I'll have a beer or two and then a weekend day where, you know, we'll walk down to a local pub or something and have a drink or two. And, and that's the extent of it. And it, it's showing my performance is going up, my weight's coming down, I'm sleeping better, all those things that you'd expect. Yeah, I only do it like I don't at home by myself. I'll never have a beer, but kind of in social situations, if we're mm-hmm. there's like a dinner or something, then I'll have something with the meal. And yeah, I got to yeah. say, it's it's kind of a bummer when you have one of those situations and you come up against a guy who's abstaining because of it. it it's it, it kind of it's a bit of a drag, and it makes you a little self conscious of the fact that you're indulging <laughs> when you probably shouldn't. You know who we should talk to about this is Adam Hansen, the, the writer for Lotto Sudal. Because I remember last year or the year before, he was going up Alpe d'Huez through Dutch Corner with a pint <laughs> in his right. hand that somebody <laughs> handed to him. So, um, a baby. And then that, that, that's probably a good example of a moment in which he chose to kind of embrace that moment and soak up the emotion and the atmosphere and everything else. I mean, how many times are you going to get the chance to, to ride up, you know, the, in the yeah. tour de France up out yeah, to right. and, and you got and like a couple, we, couple gulps in his mouth. Right. And granted, like a lot of, uh, you know, none of us, well, I, I shouldn't say that, but none of us here, none of the three of us are going to be riding up in, in the tour de France, riding up out to but we all have those moments. And I mean, I know a huge part of cycling for me that the training is, is hugely motivating. And in parallel to that, uh, the experience, uh, and many times the social experience is also a big motivator. So, you know, there's definitely a balance, but that's Chad. I, I, I feel a blog post coming on, uh, after oh, that yeah. one, because yeah. I feel like we that's can get a, some good information good out for people. Yeah, it's a pretty popular topic, rightly so. Mm-hmm. Cyclocross because, too, right? Like oh yeah, sometimes up. the beer gets yeah. thrown yeah. on you. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> you get to drink it too. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Awesome info, Chad. Thanks for that. Um, Neil. This is through Twitter. He says, can trainer road, uh, be used with a gym bike when traveling, uh, example given can just HR be used any advice? I think of a watt bike, Nate, that's one maybe that yeah. you could use. So but... there are some, <clears throat> when you say spin, uh, gym bikes, I'm, I'm thinking of like the spin bike. That's the, the name of it, but a big flywheel kind of you, you do in a, mm-hmm. a spinning class. Um, I am going to go on vacation a while and I'm going to take the power tap P1 pedals and I'm 90% sure I can thread those into a spin bike. And then I can then connect that to our iOS app and do a train road power workout. There's also, um, there's a few, I think there's a Schwinn bike that's amp plus power. And there's the Watt bike that's amp plus power. Mm-hmm. If I was going to go to a gym bike while traveling and it wasn't like a spin bike, it was just like one of those kind of, you know, crappy ones that you see. I, I would use a heart rate strap and I'd probably do a workouts that I've done a few times before 
and I would do ones that are um, maybe like three by 20 and say, okay, on the past times that I've done this workout, uh, my heart rate during that 20 minute interval is around, let's say 175 or 170. And I'm going to just do that. It's not as good as power, obviously, but it's better than not doing anything, I think, Mm -hmm. in that situation. And I wouldn't be doing anything like 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, um, especially on bikes like that, because it's really hard to adjust the tension. I would Mm -hmm. definitely try to get like lots of sweet spot, long intervals, even maybe two by 20 threshold. Uh, That can be a nice workout too, traveling, because sometimes I can't be as consistent every day. But, you know, a two two by 20s, like on a Tuesday, Thursday, back me up here, Chad, that can like... That's that's a lot of stress, and that can um, kind of make up for your week if if you can't train like five days a week that you normally do. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm fully on board. And and if you're going to use heart rate to kind of dictate or, or uh, steer you with your workout, those longer intervals are absolutely the way to go. Because like Nate said, that the shorter, harder stuff. Not only are they difficult on those bikes, but your your heart rate doesn't have enough time to respond in a in a meaningful manner. So do the longer stuff if if you can. Do do some hard stuff as well. Hmm. And, and one thing you'll be, you'll definitely be a spectacle in the gym. If you're doing two by twenties at threshold, by the way, because most people tend to just use the bike to, to spin and watch yeah. TV or just warm up, but well, they put read that people aside. Magazine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're yeah. getting faster while they are not. So, um, so yeah, kudos to you, Neil, for, for being proactive about it. And you can always call ahead too, and see if they have like which brand spin bikes that's, you know. That's something that's totally okay to do, and it'd be great to know if they have a Watt bike or the Schwinn. Gosh, it's definitely not an Airdyne, but for some reason that name is coming like, up in my head. Yeah, I think like AC Pro, or I'm not really sure. Something like that, yeah. So, um, so yeah, good luck with that, Neil. Uh, Chris or Crease, I don't know which one it is. Uh, after today's workout, it was Morgan. I increased my heart rate max by 12 beats. Should I be proud or scared? <laughs> <laughs> What do you say, so, Chad? um, it's probably not your, your heart rate max it's, it's whatever you landed on. And it's obviously not truly your max. Um, your max heart rate, if it changes at all over the course of your life, isn't going to change by more than a couple BPM maybe. Um, and then at some point it's just going to be on the decline. So <clears throat> what more likely happen is your fitness is higher so that you can push a little harder, or maybe you're just rested. So your heart rate's coming up a little bit higher, or maybe you're a little, yeah, those are probably the two most likely outcomes. But uh, uh, I, I'd be proud. There's nothing to be frightened about in that case. Good job. Good job, Chris. We're Kevin, smoking through questions. It's yeah, awesome. Yeah, we're getting through them. Uh, these Twitter questions are great for that, right? So, yeah, uh, Kevin, great job on the podcast. I just listened to episode 34 and enjoy the interview with Neil Shirley. His advice on pacing was not to waste energy, so avoid chasing down every break or needlessly charging up a hill. But he also said the deciding factor in his gravel uh, gravel worlds race uh, was a hard five minute two person breakaway just twenty five miles into the race, which is crazy, by the way, because that was <laughs> a long day in the saddle. Um, can you guys share how you go about deciding which efforts are worthwhile and which ones are a waste of energy? Thanks, and keep up the great work. I look forward to it every week. Uh, and one thing before we jump, because I think Chad, I'd li- I, you're definitely, I think, the one to take this. But keep, I think this is a precursor for what we're about to say, really. But Neil has years of racing as a pro, uh, under his belt. And, uh, this is definitely something that's built over time. But when Neil mentions this type of stuff, it's definitely, uh, mentioned, I, I should say, or the foundation for that advice is uh, a very, very wide, uh, or a, a very broad amount of experience that he has in racing. Yep. So, and that's ahead, the, that's the gist of it. It's, it's going to depend largely on experience and that experience can be in terms of knowing what you can handle. Um, but even more so, well, at least as much so knowing what your competition can handle. If you know what sort of guys make meaningful moves, you know, jump off the front. Sometimes it's just guys that just do it. It's like this, uh, uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a fruitless endeavor. They just pop up there. They don't really know what they're doing. They just felt good for a second or they felt recovered. They do it and it's completely wasted. It goes nowhere. But then you have guys that when they attack, it means something. They're, they're either trying to see who's going to go with them, see who's got the legs. Maybe they're just trying to open up for something a little harder later. But you learn who those guys are and you start to pay attention and, and, and put uh, faces or numbers to, to moves. And, you know, over time, you start to determine who's worth following and who isn't. 
Um, and then it's just a question of, of luck because you can follow the best wheel out there, the strongest guy out there, but if the field's motivated or if, you know, things don't go exactly your way, it comes back. And is it wasted energy? Not exactly. You tried. Um, wasting energy are the guys I talk about who pop off up the road, who, who attack at the base of a downhill. Everyone's recovered. Everyone's fresh or <laughs> after a tailwind or a fast stretch where people are basically noodling, but they're going 30 miles an hour. Um, if you're gonna do it, not only do you want to go with the right person or be the right person, but you want to do it at the right time. And often enough, that's, that's when everybody else is hurting. Yeah. Yeah. So can you guys expand on that? What would be the right times to attack? Um, well, just, just could, oh, let me, ahead, let me say one thing. We just, uh, we have a local course that's like this. And then, um, the race I did last night was a criterium and it was a pretty windy night. So, you know, people are sailing down one stretch of it cause they got the tailwind and, and that's when the, uh, let's just say quote unquote dumb attacks or the, the fruitless ones occur. Everyone's fresh. You, you don't attack there cause everyone's got the energy to follow you. You wait till you round a turn, you hit the headwind, maybe right when you hit the headwind, maybe you're after you're into the headwind a little bit. And people are starting to feel the fatigue creep up there because they maybe hit it a little too hard. But in any case, you do it when you're not feeling great. I mean, you might be feeling great because you came into the night just feeling good in general, but you should be working because if you're hurting, you're working hard, everybody else is too, that they're, they're going to be less likely to go with you, especially if it's early in the race. And one caveat to that, um, because that's very much a true statement. Sometimes we, however, make it untrue by riding like an idiot. Um, if we're the ones that are, if we're wasting energy and we're the type of guy that is noodling on the front like that and we're tired, well, we're tired, not just because everyone's trying hard, but we might be tired because we're not racing intelligently. And that's, mm -hmm. that's one thing to definitely keep in mind. Um, try to gauge your efforts in relation to everybody else's and in, if you're trying to think of when to attack, but always do that with thinking, okay, have I been racing intelligently? What type of, you know, what type of withdrawals have I taken from my bank of energy? Um, do I have enough in the tank still, or have I just been swiping that debit card of energy endlessly the whole time? You know? Yeah. And that's, and, and, and like being the guy who sits at the front attacking from the front. I mean, if you've been in the wind for the last two or three minutes or even 30 or 40 seconds, and for whatever reason you hit that headwind and you're feeling good, still might not be the best time to go. You've been dangling out there. You're a little fatigued. You might not have the punch necessary to actually create a gap. Um, and then there's, uh, just, just writing sensibly, basically. I mean, you have to, you have to do the work, but you also have to know that you've got enough in the tank to, to make it mean something. So you guys talked about, um, tailwinds and headwinds. What about crosswinds? Yeah, I was just going to say in, in that case, when you're talking about a race and a time to chase down or to not get left behind, uh, when, cause really Kevin, your question is which ones to chase down. So it's not as much when to attack, but which ones to chase down in a crosswind situation. Uh, once you get that separation, it can be very difficult to close it down, uh, because of the fact that everyone is dealing with a great amount of wind resistance. Um, it's coming at you from all directions. Drafting isn't going to have the, the same effect. You know, you'll form an echelon, but you'll still be going through. It's tough. Everyone has to work harder. So, um, if there are crosswinds coming into play, that's when you definitely want to err on the side of chasing things down more than letting them go. Um, would you say that's right, Chad? Yeah, there are certain circumstances where it's very much in your best interest to just bury yourself trying to close a gap and, and get somewhere that is, is mildly or, or more so protective. Um, and, and crosswinds are one of those. And they're, they're a bear because there's only so much road. And when they line up sideways, you know, depending on the degree, of the crosswind, there's just not much room. And then you get multiple echelons and you might be the guy heading that next echelon. And, and your job is to, you know, take your turn and do your best to close the gap to the, to the leading echelon. But, but there are times where you just have to commit whether you want to or not. If you don't close that gap, that could be your race. What about the time when, um, like you've just brought back like a heart attack and Counters. I've seen this happen. Yeah. And the field goes like, Oh, thank God. I can yep. rest for a second and, and it just slows down. That's, that's, that's a, a classic counterattack, And that's just mm -hmm. as, just as well as you know, a guy who, when he attacks, that's a good, a good rider to go with. Well, that might also be the guy that when he gets brought back, that's a good time to hit it because one of the most dangerous riders is now tired. He just got reeled in. So that's an excellent time to counter. And if you have the luxury of teammates, that's a great time to counter too. One of your teammates is off the front, yes. he gets reeled in, you counter it. You get reeled in, you can count on the fact that one of your teammates is, you know, ideally going to counter that. But counterattacks are, are basically the same thing. You're, you're kicking people when they're down. Yeah, and Another that's a responsibility. That's a responsibility as a teammate. 
um, that you guys should always be doing. Uh, when somebody is caught and when one of your teammates is caught, you counter. You shouldn't be the one dragging him down. But when they're caught, when the pack catches up to them or the group of riders you're with, you go. Um, that's And that's honestly, I mean, there, there are plenty of ways to look at that. But at the very least, it's the honorable thing to do to honor the work of your teammate too. Um, uh, make it tough. And this is why um, that, that whole dynamic of counterattacking and attacking is why a lot of A races. So when you go to like local races and you see A, B, and C type of a thing or whatever your organization might be, um, how they categorize things slightly differently – um, that's why a lot of the time, uh, you'll see a lot of people in the interme- intermediate category will say, well, our average speed was faster on the day, um, than the a race. But uh, when you talk about holding with that a race, when it's nonstop attacks and while, you know, you may be surging and then it may slow down for a bit, right. When an attack goes and it's constantly surging, it is really difficult to, to be able to stick with the group. But the reason is you've got a bunch of riders that are experienced. They know which brakes to chase down. They know which brakes to let go. And as a result, you have a more, I guess I should say, strategically dynamic race rather than just simply everyone pedals as hard as they can. They pop yeah. and that's what happens there. So. That That's a big difference that I've, I mean, you guys have been racing at the top category for almost your whole careers. Me, mm-hmm. I, I've gone through where I've raced the lowest and I've raced with, like held on with the top category just for dear life. Um, but what I've noticed in the, um, in the lower categories, this doesn't work at all in the higher categories, but if I have a teammate up the road, I'll get to the head of the Peloton, especially if it's a headwind and I'll get up in there and I'll pedal just like easy mm-hmm. and no one says anything like, yeah, so you're they're like three or four minutes and then it's their responsibility to come around me mm-hmm. and a guy will yell and be like, he's not pulling. He's not pulling. I'm like, that's fine. Come around me. Like it's a whole open road. But they just want to sit behind the tall guy and get a big draft. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> I but don't in, have in that the, problem. Yeah. <laughs> in Cat 1, though, it's like that does not happen. If you don't do it, nope. it people figure yeah. it out and go really fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a tactic that it's blocking. You just get up and you get in the way of people in, in, in an effort to to grow the gap for your teammate. But oftentimes, it just boils down to the fact that people are getting a free ride and they're content to take that free ride. They, they don't want to mm-hmm. work. So they'll sit on and, and yell at other people. But when it comes down to it, they won't actually do the work. So it, it's a employable tactic and a, a, a real useful one. Yeah. That cliff bar podcast about the crit racing tactics. If you mm-hmm. haven't heard that one, listen to that podcast after this. If this conversation is interesting to you at all, one of the best things that I, I got out of that was Pete talked about if a new guy comes into a high, uh, a high category race, everyone yells at him to like, <laughs> or you yell at him to pull harder and there's no that guy doesn't have to pull harder they just want to mess with your brain so you mm-hmm. do pull harder because you don't know yes. any better oh yeah there's the, yep. the the psychological aspect of of tactics is fascinating there's a lot to be spoken about there i mean you can you can berate even long time racers into doing something that they don't even feel up to uh, it, it's just a question of you know how how uh, emotionally malleable they are at the moment you can really exploit that and that's there's, episode there's 21, the, by the way, if you're looking for which episode is episode 21. There's all this stuff in cycling where like, it's like what's honorable and you know, you have mm-hmm. to do this and put in a good effort when really like with game theory, like in a break, you, you, in a, you know, in a break, you have to pull and do your work, but it's, you, you really will have to pull just enough so that you stay away from the Peloton if you want to but still have more energy to beat the other guys. It's like, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. this gamble. And mm-hmm. you might you might be in the breakaway and not even want it to succeed, <laughs> right? You, you you might be there just, you know, you're, uh, you're just like covering the GC. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you don't yeah. want someone else to win. So if you take me with you and I'm just going to make sure you don't get any bonus points at the end. Yeah, and that yeah. and that goading that that comes with you know someone trying to to talk you up the road. Let's just again last night's race got a rider up the road and then or a teammate up the road solo, and then I got a teammate bridging across to him, and then I'm back with the rest of the group, and I got a guy waving me through, yelling at me, "Take your turn, take your turn." I'm like, I, I don't say anything. I usually find silence is the best response. That way you don't get uh, you don't get distracted, you don't get roped into some argument, and things don't get heated. <laughs> So I, I didn't say anything, but the fact of the matter is he, he could have yelled at me the entire time and you just, you can succumb to that and make bad choices or you can just ignore it because it's not in your interest. It's not, it's not a strategy that's, that's going to work best for your team. 
Yeah, one of those teammates that Chad is talking about locally is just absolutely famous for that. And everyone that comes out on the group rides and everything else, they 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 can't stand him at first. Once you get to know him, you realize he's a good guy, but they can't stand him because he employs that tactic of being vocal to great success. But see, he's he's a known quantity, <laughs> so it's easy to tune him out and not take him mm-hmm. seriously. But you'll get in a break with guys you respect, guys you want to impress. And when they tell you to do things that you know aren't in your best interest, you got to be thick skinned. You got to, you got to find a way to shut that stuff off and just hope that they understand what's up. And chances are they do, they know exactly what they're doing. Man, it, the first time I rode with the A's with, which was your guys's group, I got yelled at all the time and I succumbed <laughs> to every single thing. I, Cause I wanted to be impressed. I'm like, I'm in the big guys. Now there's like national champs in the race. Exactly. And, you were the like, new guy. Oh, I'm, I'm doing everything wrong. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and now I know better, but if, it just hit home when uh, Pete said that in that podcast. Like, man, I got manipulated. Yeah, we can all yeah. relate to that. So, Kevin, uh, hopefully that I'm sure we gave you more than you bargained for there on that one um, regarding a lot of different topics. But hopefully it it it's understood that with time, you'll start to understand that knowing your competition is the best thing that you can do for that, knowing when to chase something down. If you've got crosswinds, err on the side of caution, of, of, of making sure that you stick with those groups that go. And, um, yeah, I'd say that that's, that's the advice there. Um, so let's move on to Greg's question. He says, um, well, and actually, yeah, Greg has, uh, I think this one's going to relate to you, Nate, because he's really talking about mountain biking and mountain bikes. So I know that you just had your first mountain bike race. so You can chime in. Um, Hey guys, I'm really liking how your podcast is evolving. Five more stars in the spirit of podcast questions that have nothing to do with trainer road, but I really enjoy listening to your answers. I have the following. After nearly two years with Trainer Road, I'm in wicked good shape. I hope this dude's from Boston. I hope he is. That would be awesome. Um, <laughs> I'm in wicked good shape, and I'm happy with my fair road racing performance. Back in the day, I was as much a mountain biker as I was a roadie. Now, 20 years later, I'm ready to get back on the trails, but the old hardtail is showing its age. Now that I'm trying to come to terms with the current state of the sport, I have no idea what anyone is talking about. And it's true. It is pretty confusing. I'm sure Nate can attest to that um, because Nate's just got it getting into it himself. Um, What is the difference between trail, enduro, cross country, and all mountain bikes? These all sound like different and all mountain is the term there, not uh, all. So all mountain. These all sound like different words for the same thing. I just want to tear up some gnarly single track. Why do I care about head angles and slackness? I thought I was the slacker. (laughs) I'm old at 40. Uh, that's your words, not mine. I want a new bike. Full suspension seems nice. Where the heck should I go from there? If I can jump in for just one second, let me, let me say this because you guys are going to totally own this question, but Greg, you have a lot of fun stuff to look forward to. I've recently re-immersed myself in this world and disc brakes and fatter tires with better compounds and suspension. It's a whole new game. Jonathan, why don't you take the difference between the bikes? Cause you really, you know, that stuff better than I do. Yeah. So really the, the, there, there are a number of different differences or uh, there are a number of differences here, but, uh, I'll try to make it as simple as possible. So we'll start with, uh, cross country is a type of racing, right? And cross country is you climb up and you climb down, usually done on short loops. So you need a bike that's a f- very efficient at going up and generally they don't have the gnarliest of descents. So you don't need a bike that's incredibly capable going down. Um, you end up making up for that with some good riding skill. So cross country is going to require a bike that climbs well uphill. And here's what that means. Not a lot of suspension travel because the more suspension travel you have, you kind of feel, start to feel like you're standing on a trampoline, if that makes sense. So you lose a lot of efficiency when you're pedaling. A lot of your body weight is making that suspension go up and down, requiring you to use a lot more muscles to balance yourself. It gets difficult. The other thing that a cross-country bike does is it puts you further forward on the bike instead of further behind. And they do this in two ways. Number one, they make sure that that head tube angle, like you said, that's essentially just the angle of the forks in relation to the frame. They make sure that the forks aren't like a chopper sticking way out in front of you. They make sure that the forks are more, uh, more upright, straight up and down, or they aren't straight up and down, but closer to it. And what that does is that makes the bike quicker to respond. It puts you further forward on the bike. So you're in a more aggressive position that allows for more efficient pedaling. And the bikes also, since they have less travel, they're more efficient, but they're also lighter. So it starts at the bottom with cross country. And then every category after this becomes more downhill oriented. So it starts at cross country, then goes to trail 
Then from trail, it goes to enduro. Now, all mountain is kind of a vague category that you shouldn't even need to worry about. All mountain is kind of going the way of the dodo bird because enduro is kind of replacing that. So cross country is the most climbing. Trail is an in-between. Enduro is getting more downhill oriented. And what happens with the bikes in cross country, there's not a lot of travel. The forks aren't like a chopper. They're more right, uh, they're more straight up and down. And then as you go to trail, it becomes a little bit more relaxed with that head tube angle. So that makes it easier to roll over things. You have a little more suspension travel that makes it easier, but the bike is still there. Your body's still in a comfortable position to pedal well. So it's not like an inefficient trampoline of a bike. Once you get into enduro, they're practically as capable as downhill bikes from a few years past. Um, you have up to 160 millimeters of travel, which is quite a lot. Um, you have a bike that has much more of a slack head tube angle. So that means the forks are sticking further out in front of you. going to make it easier to roll over nasty stuff. And then that increased suspension travel is going to give you a lot more capability with the bike as well. Um, that you mentioned, um, you mentioned slackness. That's always talking about the head tube angle there. Um, and that's, that's kind of a, a, a confusing thing, but it's pretty much that simple. So you've got cross country, really pedally short travel and steep angles. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we've got enduro, slack angles, a lot of suspension travel. Um, the one thing that I would recommend is that I think a lot of people go towards cross country or enduro. And to be honest, I think that trail bikes, so, and a trail bike is generally 120 millimeters of travel up to like 140 millimeters of travel. That is such a good bike. And it's the bike that 99% of people actually need. Um, a lot of roadies just go to cross country bikes because they think that that's what they need. Cause they're a pedaling guy and it's really, uh, you know, that's what they're focused on, but then they put themselves in a situation where their bike makes downhills and sketchy stuff, even more sketchy. Then a lot of people think they need 160 millimeters of travel and you see them trying to pedal up a hill and it's, and it's <laughs> really tough. So I would look at a trail bike, something in the 120 to 140 range, but Nate, you're going through a whole transition right now because you've introduced fat bikes into the spectrum <laughs> and you're switching and yeah. you actually, yeah, so, this has been a really cool project for me to like see from the outside in to see Nate trying this. So, yeah. So I'll abbreviate my mountain bike history right now. So I have a, I had a fat bike. Um, at first I did incredibly slow on the downhills. Jonathan taught me how to descend. I got a lot better at it. Um, I did my first uh, very heavy fat bike too. I think it's like 36, 37 pounds. It's I hefty. did my first, yeah, cross country. It's fat. Uh, it has a fork though. That's one. It's a hardtail, but it has a fork up front. It has the blue yeah, rock. It has a fork. Bluto. I think yeah. it's only an 80 millimeter Bluto. Yeah, I don't think it's that I, big. I want to say yeah. it's not very much at all. Um, first cross country race. Uh, contrary to Jonathan's advice, you know, he said last podcast, Nate, you got to gun it from the beginning. Gun it, gun it, gun it. But I pre-rode the course once, and this was such a technical cross-country course. Someone told me afterwards, he's like, that's the most technical cross-country course you'll ever do. So I didn't want to be the first guy in the single track and have all these people behind me. So I was like, well, I'll pace it up. But then when I got into the single track, I found out that I started in the lowest category. I was a much better descender than all the people ahead of me. Uh, <laughs> so my skills were actually better. And what would happen is, so I'd be in a line of like five people, and then there'd be a tough section. It kind of like an uphill and it would, it would turn sharply in the trees and the person would stop on the uphill and then all five of us would like jam up <laughs> and uh, I, I, it would be so steep that I couldn't start on, you know, it'd be like a 13% grade. So I'd have to get off and then people coming behind would start yelling at me and it was, it was very annoying. That happened to me like six times during the race where someone would oh. just stop right in front of me on extremely, yeah. it was because it was too steep for them or it was too technical for them. Which is a uh, tactic so was, we employ, by the way, at times. We don't stop, but we stutter. If a guy's following me close on a steep hill oh. and I'm tired of it, then I'll tap <laughs> yeah. my brakes or I'll pause and that'll make them unclip. So, yeah. That does not... So These people really were just couldn't handle it. <laughs> but that is a good... Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's good. And the other thing I noticed, in the, at least in this race, um, you know, the single track, you can't pass anybody. And there were so many people that you really couldn't get a big... Um, uh, lead on someone all of the gaps happened on the uphill and with the fat bike and stuff i really want a race bike now so i went and i demoed a, a yeti a 4.5c jonathan and i talked about bikes for i don't know three months leading up to that 
mm-hmm. I decided on getting a bike that's it's midway between a cross country bike and a trail bike. Mm-hmm. So um, the Yeti 4.5C, I like it because it has this switch infinity thing and you really get less bob while you're pedaling. Mm-hmm. I, I really felt like it was kind of pushing me up the hill, but it is a little bit more slack and it has, I think we went with 130 millimeters to travel in the front and 114 on the back. Yeah, because it's right? more of a, yeah, because it ships kind of like a trail bike. But what we've done is we've, we've altered some things to make it more like a cross country bike. So instead of 140 mils in front, we went to 130 mil and then we were building this thing up to be super light and, and capable for XC. The other thing I noticed, at least in our area is that I have the ability to rent a lot of these bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, mountain bike rentals are seem a lot more prevalent than road bike rentals. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's like the best way. Cause then you can try a cross country bike and enduro bike and a trail bike and really feel the difference. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I have a, I also just got, you know, before the last podcast, I, I had my surgery where I had a tonsillectomy in my sinus surgery, lost 13 pounds, didn't <laughs> eat for two weeks. I haven't worked out in this. I'm going to do my first, I'm going to do a petite today to try to get back into it. But it's been, uh, it's been, at least I lost weight, but Chad and I were talking about it. I literally didn't eat like maybe more than 200 or 300 calories a day for like five days. And I lost mostly muscle. I lost some fat too, but it was majority of muscle. And I, we were talking about, this is just, uh, this would happen in college. I would see, um, some of my, um, uh, my female friends do like, a a, a, a cleanse diet where they would just drink like lemon juice. <laughs> so what happens is your body it's and Chad back me up, but it's easier to, for your body to eat that muscle when you're starving yourself. It's like a readily available for, um, source of energy rather than the, the fat. And then, so you lose, let's say you lose three pounds of fat and eight pounds of muscle. Well, every pound of muscle, uh, raises your basal metabolic rate by 50, uh, calories. So the amount of calories you're burning each day by just not doing anything. So when, after your diet, you come back, you weigh less, but now you're burning less calories. Mm-hmm. And if your, your weight, usually people then start eating regularly, their weight creeps back up and you end up being fatter than you started. And then they do it again and they keep doing that. And then you're just screwed for life. Chad, do you you have anything to say on that? The only thing I can really add to it is that most people uh, accompany starvation or or fasting, cleansing, whatever, with inactivity. And that's the real killer. If they can maintain some level of inactivity, they they can uh, uh, mitigate that to a great extent. And I mean, in the case of the whole... Some uh, level of activity, not inactivity. Yeah, yeah, yes. It's like that whole uh, sleep low, train high sort of thing where, um, you, you know, you're you're fueling for the workouts and then you're, you're not eating when you don't need it. I mean, you're timing your nutrient intake such that it's, it actually relates to, to what you're doing. Um, and then when people stop eating, they, they stop working out and metabolism takes a bit of a nosedive and, uh, everything, you know, the mu- muscle mass starts to, starts to suffer fat metabolism declines. It's just a kind of a, a horrible cycle. Um, if anyone else wants to, or is doing this, has the kind of surgery, I'll, uh, sinus stuff, easy, no big problem. Tonsillectomy, brutal. Uh, it got worse from day one. It was like easy and I could eat some stuff. It got worse up till day eight and then it started getting better. Um, I got thrush, which is, it's pretty, it's what little kids get. It's like a fungal infection on your, in your mouth from um, having dry mouth because I couldn't breathe through my nose. So I'd have to kind of like breathe through my mouth and uh, being on antibiotics. So cured that. And then I got a sinus infection after that. Uh, then you have to take opiates and it's just, it's the, the tonsillectomy is no fun. Plus it's super gross, but I did shave. I lost all the, 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 the body weight, but I also lost some grams in my tonsils. That's what uh, Trevor, he told me, he's like, you're shaving grams, you're man. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. That's gotta be 30 grams right there. Yeah. Um, the last thing I wanted to touch on here, we're going to do one more question, but just on, uh, um, Kevin on your, uh, or forgive me, Greg, on your question about mountain bikes there. there um, if you're looking at like the big three brands, um, just to give you an indication of what those trail bikes are, a Giant Trance, I think Chad has a Giant Trance actually. I do, yes. Um, the Giant Trance, is it going to be a good trail bike? Uh, the Trek, um, I think their top fuel or remedy is their trail bike. And Specialized Camber is a, is a great bike. And then the bike that I ride is technically an XC, XC slash trail bike too. Um, and it's the Yeti ASRC. Um, and would, that's would what specialize, Would specialize the stump jumper be the trail and then the uh, mm-hmm. camber be like the half cross country, half trail? 
kind of. That's how they try to categorize it. But to be honest, the camber, I think a lot of people get the stump jumper when they should be getting the camber. And the reason for that is because it's got a little less travel and most people aren't going to use all the travel that they would get with a bigger bike. And it's also going to make it easier to ride uh, up. You know, it's going to be easier to climb. So uh, that's going to make it easier for most people when they're starting out. So. Well, one more question. He, you know, he says full suspension seems nice. How should someone choose if they're coming into mountain biking, if they should have a full suspension bike or a hardtail? So the one great thing about a hardtail, and I know, uh, Chad, you, you're, you're going from a full suspension to a hardtail right now. Well, you, you have both. Uh, I you have don't both, have to yeah. compromise. Um, and I've just come from racing on a hardtail last year to a full suspension this year. Um, the one thing about a hardtail is that it forces you, by force, you have to pick your lines and be very disciplined about that. Um, coming into mountain biking for me, that wasn't necessarily something I needed to build. And that was because of a lifelong, uh, of, you know, my life so far, I've raced motocross consistently for years. Um, so that that's bred into me at a very deep level there to, to always be picking lines and to be picking the right ones. Um, but a hardtail forces you to do that. Um, it also makes a lot of things, um, in some respects more difficult, like going over bumpy sections and you're trying to put the power down. A full suspension bike is so nice when you're going over anything choppy, rocky, or bumpy, and you have to pedal. It's just so nice because the bike is going to allow you to keep traction and, and to keep stable while you can just put the power down. Um, so I would recommend two, I would recommend trying them if you're brand new, starting with a hardtail, and if you feel like you're the type of dude that hits rocks and trees all the time and goes off the trail, then it's probably a good idea to start with a hardtail for a bit because that'll force you to to pick the right things. Having said that, it may not be as fun. Uh, you may have hmm. a whole lot more fun on a bike that's a full suspension bike, and that's a big part of mountain biking is getting that enjoyment out of it. You know, well, could it might matter too where that where he lives, mm -hmm. like Colorado yeah. versus Iowa? Yeah, if you're back east in the East Coast, I would recommend going with a full suspension, you have a lot of roots, a lot of rocks, a lot of slick stuff where traction is extremely important. I mean, if you look at the average speeds from this year at national championships out West here, I think that they were somewhere around 15, 16 miles an hour, maybe for the, for the national champ that won Howard Grotz. And if you look a few years back, back East, it was like eight mile and eight miles an hour was the winning speed. So it's really slow, really technical and bumpy. So having a full suspension bike can really help with that. Out west, you can get away with a hardtail a lot easier. It tends to be there. It tends to be smoother until it's really not smooth with rock gardens or something like that. But back east, you tend to deal with a lot of consistent bumps. Probably the best choice is just get one of each, right? Yeah, right. Why not? A cyclocross, <laughs> trail, enduro, yep. hardtail. Another get arrow more. to the quiver. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so we're just gonna end with uh, one more question here with Tim. He says. This doesn't necessarily fit into rest and recovery, but there was no motivation category. My question has to do with commitment and motivation. We've entered the second week of May, which in this part of Canada means mountain biking season is underway. This winter was my first foray into power-based training, and I've been committed since December. Good job on that. Uh, with two young children and a full-time demanding job, the majority of my workouts uh, happen before the family get up, which means waking up at 5.15 a.m., now five months in and the first bike race scheduled for this weekend, my motivation to train is waning. So my question is this, do you have any tips, tricks, or advice to offer on how to maintain motivation or drive when the going gets tough? I think part of the poll right now is from the, from the availability of outdoor riding, but I think the main motivation killer is the compounded challenge of 5, 15 AM wake ups. Thanks. Yeah, Tim, this is a, a massive topic, uh, sports psychology in general, but then related to endurance sports, a little less massive, but still a huge topic. Um, and it kind of boils down to uh, your motivation, um, intrinsic, extrinsic, you know, what, what drives you. And it sounds like what drives you is racing. And I'm in the same boat where you train for months and months and you don't really do any racing. So the motivation just kind of starts to fade. I'm willing to bet that you're going to get a race under your or in your legs and, and, and your motivation is going to rekindle. I mean, getting up yep. early is hard, but you're not going to get any sympathy from me. I get up about a, an hour earlier than you do and still make it work. I, I don't think that's the issue. Maybe, maybe it doesn't help, but I think you just need to experience some of what you're working toward. So you get out there and you have a race, good or bad, just going to get get outside, get on the trail, get on the road, depending on what you're doing. And, and you'll get a taste of 
you know, where your fitness is and, and, and that the hard work is paying off. And I have, uh, I'm willing to bet you're, you're going to find a, see a resurgence in your motivation really soon here. I, I find exactly the same thing. If my motivation is low, many times what I need, well, and I guess it depends, but many times when I need is a race, I either get motivated because I win and I do well, um, which that makes it sound like I do that all the time. But the reality is probably the other side of things is sometimes I get my butt kicked. And when that happens, that's a lot of motivation for me too, because then when I'm getting up at 515, I'm not begrudgingly mm-hmm. doing so. I'm thinking, guess what, dude, that beat me last week. I'm up and training before you are, you know, and that that's huge for me. So, I mean, I think that Tim, uh, you may have already entered this race since, uh, it looks like you, uh, or perhaps you're racing tomorrow, uh, on the weekend, something like that. But the thing that I would say to you, Tim is, is hold on and just keep doing what you've been doing for, for this many months. Um, and trust me, once you start racing, that motivation is going to come in hard And the one thing you should remember, and this will guarantee that you have increasing performance throughout the year is don't just drop your indoor training because you can ride outside constantly keep up on it. Maybe alter it. Um, especially with mountain biking, you need time outside on those trails and it's tough to get in interval training there. So put everything in its rightful place. Um, and I know days on the trail, I'm I'm sure Nate can talk to this too, but, um, in terms of stress, you know, you got, uh, what your physical stress, which is your training. It's pretty obvious your mental stress, which is, you know, work and, and life and then emotional stress, which is more tied to your family and, and obviously your emotions. And, and you know, that, that balance shifts all the time. And you mentioned that you have two young children, a full-time demanding job. So I'm guessing that's pretty stressful physically or, or mentally, perhaps a bit emotionally, but as those three things shift back and forth, you know, one of them's got to give, two of them are probably got to give depending on where that balance is. So you can also take a look at what else is going on in your life. It might not just be your motivation to train is, or it, that is suffering, but it might not be anything physical or mental. Either way, track it down to, to one of those three things. And, and, you know, maybe it's nothing to worry about. Maybe it's something that's going to pass. Um, I've been in the same boat too. So Again, I'm just like you guys having races and doing lots of races, going towards a race is totally motivating for me. Um, having a buddy who's about my fitness level, who will go to races with me. That is huge. Especially if we can battle it out. That's a huge motivator for me. Um, I've had it before too, where training for an Ironman, I kind of like maybe a month before it, I just didn't want to do anything. And I would say I you you can be in that and what Chad uh, Chad said too about the other kind of stresses in your life maybe reduce the volume of your training a little bit and uh, maybe drop some of those fillers and keep the uh, the interval workouts and some of those weekend more fun ones if you have time to do it and that might also be a little bit more motivating uh, or raise your motivation and also look at your diet I found that if I don't kind of we we talked about a lot on the podcast but fuel the workouts. If you're really restricting yourself and you're losing weight and you're not fueling your workouts, it can be a drag to, uh, Mm. to do some of those rides. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. And, and along the lines of mountain biking, Tim, just the, the final thing there is, um, as you move forward, put things in the rightful place, just do your interval training inside, but get your time on the trail outside, uh, use both of them and you're going to have a leg up on the competition. So I, I found too, I don't know if you, what do you guys think, but after every time we do a podcast, I want to do a ride. Do you guys find yeah. the same way? Just because we're talking about yeah. cycling. I'm like, oh, I want to get yeah. on a ride. I want to get on a ride. So motivated. Uh, maybe watching cycling videos or other, uh, you know, races, movies, stuff like that. Just watching mm-hmm. that kind of thing gets me the, pumped. Like whenever I watch a race, I always want to just get out and race right well, afterwards. Yeah, and it, and it sounds like you're encountering a bit of doldrums here. So my, my guess is anything that, that varies this from, from what you're doing right now and have been doing for the last few months is, is going to work for you. Yeah. You've got the UCI World Cup has just started up. So you've got World Cup cross country racing to watch on Red Bull. And it's super good this year because there's a bunch of new mountain bikers trying to go to the Olympics. Everyone's fast. Um, you've got the Giro going on. You've got a lot of different things to watch. Too, yeah. So. How do I, so how do I watch that World Cup racing, Jonathan? Because let's say if I do a ride today, can I watch the last World Cup race? Yep. Yeah. So you go to redbull.tv and then you go to live. And eh, this is strange, but you go to live and then you scroll uh-huh. through their live events archive. And you'll see where it was. And round one was it uh, was in Australia, and it was it's called XCO. Don't tell me who wins. I won't tell you. 
It's called XCO. Um, so that's cross country okay. Olympic. That's a discipline. And it's from Cairns, Australia or Cairns, as they say. So, um, up in the rainforest up there. So that's how you do it. Red Bull TV and then a Red Bull TV, go to live and then scroll through their live events. So that's the way. Great. Thanks. Yes. All right. I think that covers it for today. Uh, thanks for submitting the questions. Remember, you can do so at trainerroad.com slash podcast. You can also use Twitter and just use the hashtag AskTrainerRoad or Instagram, and you can do that as well. And we will answer as many coaching questions as we can uh, when you submit them to us. Remember, you can find and share this podcast from iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Have a good ride, guys. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.